Trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, where we ask the academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. I'm Sananda Cray. Everywhere I turn these days, I feel like there's a diet ad or a family member or a friend raving about some new diet that apparently works wonders. You've probably heard all the names. Keto, the 5-2 diet, Noom, that diet where you skip breakfast. It's everywhere. But what does the research actually say about how to lose weight and if you even need to lose it in the first place? To find out, one of my colleagues at The Conversation, Alexandra Hansen, she's our chief of staff actually, interviewed Claire Collins, Professor in Nutrition and Dietetics at the University of Newcastle. Professor Collins recently wrote an article for The Conversation titled The Science Behind Diet Trends Like Mono, Charcoal Detox, Noom and Fast 800. I've got to say, it went absolutely bananas. People really want to know about this stuff. She also designed a free online course called The Science of Weight Loss, Dispelling Diet Myths. Alexandra began by asking Claire Collins how a person would know if they needed to change their diet at all. I think one of the key things is how's your health. And so if you're worried about your weight, having a chat to your GP because they'll be able to measure your blood pressure, perhaps send you off for a blood test to check on your cholesterol levels and give you a good once over to make sure, you know, how your health is and help work out what the goals would be if you're going to try and lose weight. For, you know, a a young healthy person who perhaps just isn't happy with their body, should they be, you know, weighing themselves? Should they be counting their calories? Well, the research on young people is, is quite interesting. And when it comes to weighing yourself, unless you are absolutely trying to lose weight because you either know your diet's not really been that great and your physical activity levels haven't been great or you've got a health problem, just generally weighing yourself is actually not recommended for young people. Okay. Yeah, and the reason is because out of the blue, suddenly weighing yourself, that could be a sign of something's up in terms of self-esteem or in terms of disordered eating. Mm -hmm. And so there's a website called the Butterfly Foundation that has really great resources for parents and for young people themselves in terms of that aspect of body weight. But when it comes to health, Having a high body weight can definitely be the key driver for your risk of developing type 2 diabetes and heart disease. And the proxy for whether or not your weight is heading that way is actually your waist circumference. And the reason for that is because if you store a lot of excess weight around your waist, that is an indicator of body fat. Mm -hmm. And it's at high levels of body fat that you are more likely to uh, become resistant to the effects of insulin or to get high blood sugar levels or to start to develop high blood pressure. Now, for adults, they are then risk factors for heart disease and diabetes, for gaining more weight, for not feeling well, and then for developing complications of those. And when it comes to weighing yourself, for adults in that category, it's really interesting. There was a study done in men that showed if you just said to them, hey, just go and weigh yourself every day, that after a year, a lot of men do drop weight, with no other advice being made more aware of their body weight. Mm -hmm. Whereas for women, that doesn't cut it at all. Just weighing yourself doesn't do zip for women in terms of managing their weight. And do we know why that might be? Well, I think women probably already know about 
scales, I suspect, mm. and I suspect it's like a gender difference in how we even think about our bodies. Yeah. But in that same self-weighing research, there was a big study done in a context of general practice where the practice was trying to help people improve their weight-related health, and they found that as part of definitely trying to lose weight and trying to manage that and being in a program, that people who checked in either with the nurse or dietitian at the general practice both men and women did lead them losing more weight and they were much more likely to get to the magic level of weight loss, which is called 5%, and 5% is the amount of weight that if you keep that off for two years, you more than halve your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So mm. it's a small amount, but it's a really important amount that helps improve your weight-related health and your sense of well-being. Mm. And so do they think that you know, sort of having a, a guardian there looking over you while you're losing weight is why that was successful for them? Yeah, I think it's having somebody who, like, is coaching you and providing support. They're also able to direct you to other types of information that you may need, just provide that motivation, help you to feel part of the community who are all on this weight loss journey. And they can usually repeat those measures, like your blood pressure or check your waist circumference or say, hey, it's time to get your cholesterol levels checked again and probably point out to you how well you're going. When you ask people how much weight would you like to lose um, before they're starting a diet, it's pretty common for people to say, I want to drop 30% of my body weight. Mm. So, you know, if you weigh 100 kilos, I want to be 70 kilos or less. But you absolutely do not need a target like that to improve your health and sense of well-being. And what we know from all the research is, particularly for not getting type 2 diabetes, is that having an initial target of around 10%, so if you're 100 kilos, around 90 kilos, if you can aim for that, and then once the diet is finished, you only rebound by half of that, that's actually enough to stop you from developing type 2 diabetes. Okay. Yeah, so we really need to rethink what is the lifestyle that I need to adopt? How much healthier do I need to eat? How much more physical activity do I need to do just to stop me from continuing to gain weight and to drop a little bit of weight so that I feel better and all of my risk factors improve? It's not as much as people think. Mm. And and that idea of, you know, bouncing back and putting on more weight than than you had initially lost is a big one. And so how do you think people can avoid doing that? Is it is it the whole kind of idea of being on a diet that you spoke about? Is that what makes people kind of rebel? Yeah, I think so. For some for some people, it's I'm on a diet or I'm eating junk food. You mm -hmm. know, it's black and white. Yeah. But finding the balance. So a really helpful thing is when you're on your weight loss journey, think of it as a journey and what are you learning along the way? And diets, by definition, are always more strict because you are monitoring your kilojoule intake or taking care not to drink too much alcohol, all of these things. But I think it's it's useful when you're in this more strict period of managing your lifestyle behaviours. What are the things I could live with long term? What are the things that I could change long term? What are the eating habits that I think I really could adopt long term? You know, most people, it's things like eating more vegetables and fruit than I usually did, 
not buying as many cakes and biscuits, cutting down on the takeaways, managing the amount of alcohol I drink. So what of those can you moderate? And they're the factors that'll come back to be your new eating pattern and that are going to keep the weight off. We absolutely know from the research that diets tend to be short-term. So if you stop following a diet, of course, weight comes back on. But there's a lot of research now looking at what we call maintenance of lost weight. And what we know is that doing something different in the maintenance does lead to success long-term, and it's those small changes that I was talking about. In Australia, we have a signpost for healthy eating habits. It's called the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating. You know, some older adults will remember the old five food groups from school days. And there's a big difference between what Australians eat at the moment and the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating. For most of us, if we could eat a bit more like the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, we'd improve our health. More importantly, we'd improve our sense of well-being because we'd get the phytonutrients from all those vegetables and fruit, whole grain, lean serves of meat, chicken, fish, and more legumes and more dairy products. And that is what will keep us healthy on the inside and very importantly, keep us feeling better as well. And so are you saying, you know, if someone goes on a really kind of restrictive diet, so say they've, you know, had a really poor kind of junk food diet, they go on a restrictive diet. And then after after that, so long as they maintain you know, so long as their diet's not as bad as it was before, then that's still yeah. helpful. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. If you think of it as more like a sliding scale, so for most Australians, eating like the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating will be associated with dropping their body weight because it's so healthy, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's a sliding scale down to the next level of kilojoule restriction is what we called a reduced energy diet. Now, a reduced energy diet is where you look at your eating habits and you go, oh, what substitutions could I make that would drop around 2,000 kilojoules, which is 500 calories per day out of my eating habits? The cleanest, neatest example of that is somebody who's drinking, you know, four cans of soft drink a day and drop changing that to a diet soft drink or water. That immediately pulls kilojoules out of your eating pattern. So that's called a reduced energy diet. Even things like, you know, following a low glycemic index or a low GI diet, that often means you substitute for foods that are lower in kilojoules. The next level of energy restriction is called a low energy diet. And that's where you go, right, I'm not going to eat more than 5,000, 6,000, 7,000 kilojoules per day. And a lot of the home delivery diet plans are like that. Mm. Those sorts of diets can be really useful for someone who says, I haven't got a clue about kilojoules. I've got no idea what 6,000 kilojoules worth of food would look like. So doing that for a couple of weeks, you go, oh, okay, now I get it. Oh, you mean that much rice? And it really helps people work out portion sizes. Then the next level of kilojoule restriction is really quite severe, and that's called a VLED, which stands for Very Low Energy Diet, typically uses those formulated meal replacements. Now, these are reserved for like top-grade medical nutrition therapy where doctors said you must lose weight. You cannot have surgery unless you drop some weight or you have type 2 diabetes. It's out of control, I should say. We need to know if your level of control can be improved or it might mean perhaps you need to start on insulin. So that type of diet is only around 2,000 kilojoules per day 
500 calories per day. You need a lot of support, a lot of help to work through that in order to see if you can get rapid health gain from such a strict approach. Mm. The evidence says those approaches can work, but long-term you need support to go back down through a low-energy diet, a reduced-energy diet, till you get back to eating like the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating mm. and so that your health and well-being improves. Yeah. And so people shouldn't just put themselves on these very low-energy diets without speaking to a doctor? Not a very low-energy diet because there are, is a risk of side effects. It can mm. precipitate gallstones. It can actually precipitate an inflamed liver. So it's not something you should DIY. You should, shouldn't be trying that one at home at all. Yeah. And um, you really ought to touch base. And for whatever your health is, checking that your health is going to improve and that that is what's recommended for you. Because, mm, I mean, you see, you know, on the internet all the time, I mean, you know, mm. it's probably targeted advertising, maybe, you know, you don't see it as much as me, but, <laughs> you know, these these cayenne pepper diets and, you know, yeah, really, all the fads. Yeah, really, really low restricted diets and, you know, things that have, you know, customer testimonials. And so what are the risks there if people are kind of following these online diet fads? Yeah, so fad diets, there seems to be a new one every year yeah. and they certainly come and go in fashion. And most of the fad diets, you know, like, well, what is a fad diet? Well, typically they contradict current recommendations or they're one size fits all. You know, you must do this. You usually must buy a powder or a yeah. potion or something. They often have secret science in them. You know, this person who's promoting it has discovered something and nobody else in the world knows it. And unless you buy the book, you're not going to get the advantage of it. So they're called fad diets. They're typically not adequate in terms of nutrients. And so, you know, if you follow it long, long term, there'll be adverse consequences of that. You know, there are some approaches that come under that term fad but they may still be useful for getting people going in the short term. And I think the intermittent fasting diets and the 5-2 are good examples of that, where okay. if they're well managed, while they might fit into that category of fad, they actually can help lead you back down that path towards healthy eating. And in fact, for the 5-2, there's evidence that that does work, that that does work really well. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting with that is you have two days where you're at that 2,000 kilojoule or 500 calorie target, usually by food. And yes, you do have to buy the book to find out how to create 500 calories or 2,000 kilojoules into three meals. But what it's shown is that with that is it seems somehow to help people reset their appetite and their appetite hormones. Because on the five days, you can eat whatever you like. But the science is showing that people don't go crazy on the five days. And what they're thinking is that Perhaps it is lowering some of the appetite hormones like leptin, which you may become resistant to in your body. And also it seems that the two days of low kilojoule level are like time out and people are able to think about, wow, actually I only ate that amount and I, I felt okay. I, I was hungry, but it didn't do anything terrible to yeah. me. And so the next day they, they moderate their intake and on average um, people are having around um, 1,700 calories on those days, which is around 7,000 kilojoules. Yeah. 
And and what two thousand calories is the normal intake? Um, it it depends. Um, you know, anywhere between eighteen hundred to two thousand something is the average calorie intake for Australians. Um, in kilojoules, there's actually a website called eight thousand seven hundred, which is the theoretical average intake for Australians. Okay. Yeah. And what about um, the keto diet? I know you've written for us before about it, and, and there seems to be some kind of evidence for it. Isn't well, there? the ketogenic diet is, I think it's misused in terms of weight loss. It was first created for people with epilepsy, and the rationale behind it was that if you remove all carbohydrates or keep them extremely low and really boost protein and fat, then your blood glucose drops and your level of this compound called ketones increases, which is a metabolite of burning fat. And your brain can run on ketones, and it seems that it somehow changed the electrical activity in your brain. And for some people, their number of seizures they were having dropped. And that was the only thing that some people had before the most current seizure medications. The best science around ketogenic diets comes from a study that was done over about three months on um, men in Sweden. And what it showed was that when your blood ketone levels are high, people's appetite hormones said they're hungry. You are still hungry. But when they filled in a little visual analog scale saying, how hungry are you? They said, actually, I don't, I don't feel that hungry. So it seems that high ketone levels in your blood mean you can tolerate being hungry a little bit more. But you don't have to follow a high fat, you know, cream in my coffee and all I eat is bacon and butter on everything. You don't have to follow a high fat diet to produce ketones. When you lose weight rapidly, as you, as you do when you're on a VLED, the very low energy diet, you predominantly metabolize fat in that situation as well because your kilojoule level is so low, you must tap in to fat stores and burn that for energy. So when you're losing weight rapidly, your ketone levels go up. It can take about three days before you're producing ketones. And so you are ketogenic. You're not on the keto diet, which is a high fat diet, but you start to feel less hungry. So the most important message that I'm trying to get across is that people need help and support no matter which level of energy restriction they're trying to follow in order to manage weight and manage their weight and nutrition-related health. Any of those levels of energy restriction can work, but people rarely get help to move between them. You may have needed to start with a VLED because your diabetes is not well controlled at the moment or because you need surgery. But once you're through that phase, you need help to go down to a lower level of energy restriction and then eventually help to get your eating patterns so they're closer to the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating. Check in with your GP, get your health checked. When you need more specific advice on diet, ask to be referred to an accredited practicing dietitian to get that. But keep trying to eat as healthy as, as you can. Yeah. And I think that is you know, the hard thing for a lot of people, especially today, you, you go to the supermarket and there are all these products that are in this, you know, packaging in cardboard and muted tones and, and, you know, it seems really healthy. So how can we sort of be sure that we're not tricked by these things that are marketed as healthy, but they're actually full of fat and sugar? 
You just made a really good point, and that's actually one of the things that's gone wrong in the food supply because once upon a time before there were so many packaged foods, you could eyeball it and go, yeah, that looks like an apple and, and you know, the kilojoules. But now, exactly as you said, they come all packaged up and you can't guess what the kilojoule value. You go into a cafe and you have no idea what the kilojoule value is of a muffin or, you know, a main meal. So it is getting that extra help and advice to learn a little bit about kilojoules. And even if you go, oh, no, I'm not interested in learning about kilojoules, at least learning the kilojoule values of your favourite foods because that will help you with working out whether you want to select something different or a, or a different amount, a, a smaller amount. It is a challenge, but there's lots of good information and lots of good articles on the conversation, and reading all of those really helps improve your knowledge and your skills when it comes to nutrition, eating better, and then improving your nutrition-related health and well-being. All right, thanks so much for your help and all your valuable information today, Professor Claire Collins. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Sananda Gray. Special thanks to my colleague, Alexandra Hansen, for bringing us today's episode and to Claire Collins for giving us her time. If you've ever enjoyed an episode of Trust Me, I'm an Expert, we'd love it if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. And most importantly, tell your friends about it. Research shows that word of mouth is by far the most effective way to get the message out about a good podcast. So it really, really helps. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks. And you can see a full list of credits and sign up for The Conversation's daily newsletter all on our website at theconversation.com. Chat to you soon.